Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two topics today, Chilean voters' rejection of the proposed constitution for the country and a view of Biden's student debt relief program from a public interest lawyer who works with seriously broke debtors. Before that, a programming note. I got more than a few complaints about my interview with Matt Huber the other week, in which he criticized the degrowthers, some thought unfairly. Sometime in the next couple of weeks, I'll have the authors of Half-Earth Socialism, Troy Viteze, and Drew Pendergrass on the show to make their case. Now on to Chile. Following a series of mass protests in 2019, the country's parliamentary parties agreed that it was time to rewrite the Constitution, a holdover from the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. I guess it's pronounced Pinochet in Spanish, but I'm habituated to the Frenchified version used by most USians. Delegates to a constitutional convention were elected in May 2021 and began their work the following July. Their work was completed a year later and put to a vote on September 4th. It was defeated by a crushing 62-38 margin. The left, in Chile and abroad, including some behind-the-news guests, greeted the document with enthusiasm for its inclusion of social rights like education and health, and for its enshrinement of gender and ethnic rights as well. As we'll hear in the following interview, the convention was essentially boycotted by the right, leaving it heavily populated by a left that wasn't representative of the broad population. When the document was finished, right-wing and establishment interests sprung into action, spreading massive amounts of fake news about it. The fear campaign worked. That aside, the amount of time budgeted for the process, not much more than a year, was quite brief for such a major event. The rejection, though not unexpected, is very disappointing to the egalitarians among us. Here with more is Antonia Atria, an activist with the Democratic Revolution Party, which emerged out of widespread student protests in 2011. She was on this show in October 2020 to discuss the constitutional rewrite in its early days. Here she is with a postmortem. Antonia Atria. Before we talk about what just happened, let's uh, review a bit of how we got here. Um, the process that led to the writing of this Constitution, could you just uh, go through some of that history of how the Constitution came to be drafted? This whole process started in 2019 with the, first, with the estallido social, the social revolt, as it's been called. And it was a series of protests about inequality and injustice in our social pact. And that slowly led to the conclusion that what we needed was a new constitution, because precisely the constitution is the legislation that sets that general social pact. And so we needed to change from a neoliberal state to one that guaranteed social rights and education, health care. Um, we needed also reforms in the feminist front, uh, et cetera, a big et cetera. And so it was so big that we needed a new constitution. It was basically a holdover from Pinochet, right? Right, right. We had those two major uh, uh, discussions in that time. So first, social rights, and the other was how we leave behind the legacy from the dictatorship, from di uh, Pinochet's di di dictatorship. Okay, so then back to the uh, the writing of the constitution. The assembly was elected to uh, do the, the the drafting of it, right? Yes, we had the, the the first plebiscite where we where the approval option won for eighty percent of the votes, and the rejection had a mere twenty percent. And after that, we elected our own constituents, and in that election, we also won by a landslide. I mean, right wing candidates composed not even a third of the convention in general. So, the, the left or center candidates had over two-thirds of the Constitutional Convention, which was really important because every ag agreement that we made had to be made uh, by two-thirds, by a quorum of two-thirds. So uh, then we they were elected and they started working on this proposal. We had reserved seats for Indigenous peoples, and we also had equality between genders in the election as a result, not only in the, candidate, in the candidacies, but also in the result. And we had um, a list of candidates of um, independent, they, uh, meaning they, they were not from any political party. They started working and they started reaching the, con the conclusions from this process, but they were very early on 
questioned and the con the convention as an as an organ was very questioned from the beginning from september of the of 2021 when they started working and that only got worse and the evaluation the citizenship made of it slowly started declining and declining and declining questioned how and by whom who is causing the trouble here we have two big factors we had an organ that was very very diverse it had people from low-income backgrounds. Um, we had the right wing sort of stayed <laughs> the same, but the left and center candidates were from many regions of the country, many social backgrounds and everything. And that sort of was very applauded at the beginning, but slowly it sort of became inappropriate for some. There were a cer certain little incidents that were exacerbated by mainstream media about, for example, I don't know, constituents voting from the shower, um, some made their, their opening speeches by playing guitar, and so that sort of embedded the convention with a not serious sort of tone. But also, and this is very important, we had a major scandal because one of them was elected because of his fight with cancer. And then he turned out he didn't have cancer. So you had a lot of little issues that were that all added up together made the convention look Unserious. And then what did the right do during this process? I mean, I, I imagine they were promoting all these scandals as much as possible, but uh, anything else that they were, were, were trying to do to just disrupt the process? Yes. They promoted all the scandals. Mainstream media, as I told you, did the same. But also, the right-wing candidates did not approach this organ with a collaborative... Um, and so instead of making serious proposals of changes they wanted in the Constitution... They started presenting presenting Pinochet's constitution as indications to the articles, and so the same text from the, con the uh, constitution of 1980, they started presenting it as proposals for the new text when the entrance plebiscite made sure that the country did not want that constitution, and that they made it to extend the time the convention worked. They only had a year, so they had very little time. Instead of really contributing to the discussion, they sort of I don't know how you say it, but they, but they extended it or tried to um, delay it uh, a little bit. So how much time was there between the completion of the doc document and uh, the actual vote? The document was presented uh, 4th of July of this year, and the election was on 4th of September of this year. So you had three months of campaign. And what was that campaign like? Was there an open debate? Was there a lot of silliness, trivialities? I mean, was it ser how, how serious was the debate? Well, I think, and this is sort of when what we're going to get into on the question of why we lost, but I think it was a very unequal campaign. For example, when you look at the amount of money invested in either campaign, what, what uh, the, the, the budget of the approval option was merely 20% of the budget of the rejection uh, campaign. And you tried to sort of point out the good aspects of the Constitution, but there was a climate in the discussion, and I think you guys in the U.S. are very familiar with it, of fake news. We cannot only attribute it to that, but we, we should get into detail later on it. But when you went and made campaign and talked to people, only the, the reason they told you they were going to reject or they were unsure of the proposal was basically things that were not in the proposal in reality. And that was the fake news that the right side wing, the mainstream media sort of installed. For example, I don't know about uh, people not being, that they were not going to be able to own their homes or that their pensions funds were going to be expropriated or that, or that indigenous peoples were going to become first grade citizens while the rest of us were going to be left as second class citizens. A series of lies that were not really in the text and if you if you look at the campaigns, the approval campaigns sort of referred to articles. They were always trying to point what was good in the constitution, and the rejection never once actually talked about real articles that were in the proposal. They were n never quoting articles, never quoting the text. So, who was behind all the fake news? Maybe this sounds a little cliche coming from left wing, the left wing side, but it's political. Uh, the economic power in the country, promoting this sense of economic uncertainty, the, the right-wing political classes promoting all these lies also, and they were promoted 
in mainstream media, in actions that took other sectors of the economic power. For example, I don't know, you have, we here we have private healthcare, right? And those uh, companies, we call them isapodists, constantly saying they, they are on the verge of broke and other things. So they employed different tactics to sort of position this sense, this fake news in, in the public. And what about political parties? Um, how active were you know, the formal political parties in the process? That is a very interesting question. Political parties are basically going through the worst period, I think, in the terms of citizen, how citizens evaluate the political parties. Nobody likes political parties. Only 5% of citizens are active members of political parties. And both campaigns... I mean, I mean, the campaign from for the rejection side annulled their political representatives. Barely any deputies made any appearances. The ex-Piñera, ex-president of Chile, did not make any appearance during this whole period since he left office. Their extreme right-wing candidate, José Antonio Gas, did not make any appearance. Their televised propaganda, La Franja, we call it here, they did not make any appearance, no par- political party logo, nothing. But the Google option sort of positioned political parties. They Their main uh, voices came from political leaders. Their televised options, political party presidents were speaking. Uh, they had every logo from parties, especially from the center, the, the center left parties. Uh, the Socialist Party, the Radical Party, the Party for Democracy, you had a difference in in terms of the role that meant the approval was more backed by the political parties or the political institutions, for, so to speak, from the left. And the right wing was more of the social, uh, civil society, organizations, uh, and other sort of spokesmen. I'm speaking with the Chilean political activist Antonia Atria. Now, aside from the fake news, what uh, are there reasons beyond the fake news for um, the population rejecting uh, the proposed constitution? This is a big question, Doug. Um, so it might be a long answer, so interrupt me whenever. But no, go ahead. The main problem is that we were in a in what we call a destitute moment. That meant from the social revolt of 2019, people were tired of this, the current system and there was a lot of anger and a lot of criticism to this, the system that we have now in order. What the Constitutional Convention tried to do and what we tried to do in the campaign was m- pass from this destitute moment to a constituent moment. I mean, a moment where we propose to the country a new system, a new social pact, a new way of organizing social life. But going through that process is not easy because many people can be against something but not be sure or not or not agree with what you propose. So I think that was a first climate in which we sort of tried to position this discussion. In that, fake news really had a, a, a big role. And I think we cannot side, side that because precisely what, what you cannot so- propose a new social path, a new social order. If, if people cannot make that decision informed. And they couldn't because to, because you had so many lies that scared people that they couldn't really see the, what was proposed for them. They couldn't really see the consequences of it the, the, uh, or, or how it was proposed, right? Um, so fake news is a big part of the problem, I think. And I think people from the left are sort of accepting that that cannot be the main, the main explanation. But I, I still maintain that we have to really point that because if not, uh, we lose too much. But the real question on fake news is why were, made, why were fake news so efficient? And the answer to that question is that there was a climate where fake news were made credible and believable. And that climate, I think, was the result of the composition of the con- of the constitutional convention. As I mentioned, we had reserved seats for uh, indigenous people. We had uh, gender equality and the composition of the convention, and we had independent people. So that meant that the composition of the constitution resulted in in a composition where you didn't need to speak to the right wing for any sort of agreement on what was going to be 
written on the new constitution. And that meant that the Socialist Party was sort of the rightest wing you had to go. Maybe uh, the Christian democracy, which is a center party. So that meant that you had a, conven a convention that spoke in the terms of the traditional left, that that used that language and that also had a lot of, of members that were from this destitute moment that were very critical to what we had and that were very angry about everything that we had. So you had people proposing absurd things like the elimination of the state powers or you had and the confirmation of assemblies. And the constitution, of course, uh, voted against that in com completely, but you installed the idea that there were representatives in this constitutional convention that liked those ideas. And so you, you had a convention that by its composition made credible that they wanted to expropriate everything, that they wanted every public service to be given by the state and no co uh, private collaboration. Everything was not, nothing of that was in the text. But when the right wing sort of tried to sell you that, you said, well, that made sense with the people that were there. So that was a big, big problem for us, how the convention sort of made its job. But I think also, and I think this is important, after the war, everyone is a general. When the convention was working, I honestly do not think that it could have, could have been any different. The right wing was no disposal to actually collaborate and for any agreement, you had to go talk to the um, left leftists, so to speak. So I think that was sort of why it happened. And I, I am not sure we could have done it any other way. Coverage in the U.S. often describes Chile, um, uh, the people of Chile, as rather conservative. It's a conservative country, uh, politically, culturally, uh, and that uh, this constitution was just too radical for the Chilean population. What do you say to that analysis? I think we are not conservatives. I think we are gradualists. We are very institutional, and we are, and we like that the changes are gradual, cert filled with certainty, etc. I don't think the proposal itself was very radical. If you looked at, for example, a certain uh, one of the of the transition articles, it stated that everything was maintained. Nothing of our legal order after the day of the of the approval, if it was approved, um, was going to be declared unconstitutional. The only way to declare unconstitutional was through a legal the legislative process. So I think. In reality, it was not an um, extremely radical co constitutional proposal. The problem there is that there were certain element, elements that I think were a little bit more radical, but we were never able to really install mediatically and communicationally the the real graduality which, with which it was presented to the public. I wouldn't call it conservative. I would call it gradualist or moderate. <laughs> But now you also didn't have very much time, and this process was a year to write the Constitution and get it approved. That's not very much time for something that seemed like a pretty significant change in the, the whole country's political order. Absolutely. And not only we only had a year to first made a, make a, how do you call a reglamento, the, the norms of functioning of the convention, right? You had three months where the convention had to be completely discussing how they were going to to function. And then you only had nine months to actually write a proposal. So it was very accelerated, accelerated. But also, during the first period of the convention, you had a government that did not back you up. You had Piñera's government um, that did not give uh, the convention enough funds. So you had a, a, a government that in, in administrative things was not helping the convention work and work efficiently. And that was during most of the six months, maybe more, of the work of the convention itself. Okay, so where from here? I mean, what uh, what's what's next? Uh, another attempt at writing a constitution, or is that uh, dead for now? I mean, before going to what's next, I think there is also one uh, aspect that I forgot about why we lost that I think it's important, and it was that for this election, the, we introduced mandatory voting. Chile had mandatory voting, but with uh, voluntary inscription until 2013. And after that, it was mandatory inscription, but, but voluntary voting. 
And that meant that the last presidential election was the highest participation in recorded in, in the history of the, of the country after the dictatorship. And that was 55%. It was, that was the most, 55% were the amount of people that voted. And that was a lot. In this election, we had 85% of participation. That is an increase of over 30% of 30% of the population. And I think that cannot be dismissed because every political analysis that was made and the decisions that were made were based on the manifestation of the will of 50% of the people. So there was a 45% of people that you really did not know what they wanted, what they thought, what they expected. And that meant that when you approach this campaign and when you approach the work of the convention, you were only guided by these 80% of people who wanted a new constitution, by the people who did not give one third of the convention to the right wing. And that made your analysis skewed. Uh, but also mandatory voting meant that the differences in money that was invested were significantly more important. Money means being able to reach with your message more people. And that means that the right, the right wing campaign could reach more people than us. But also, it is easier to install lies to those people than try to explain to them why they are lies, try to make these people that are not interested in voting in general read a text and sort of see the lies themselves or try to explain to them the articles and everything. So I think mandatory voting was very, very important to this election. And of course, that does not mean that we must return to voluntary voting. I think ma mandatory voting is here to stay. Uh, I think it, it, this was a particular election, but we must analyze that and incorporate that in our next steps. Okay, and those next steps. What's next? Another attempt at writing a constitution or is that uh, being abandoned for now? Yes, we are going to have another attempt at writing a constitution. And this is also relevant because I think um, us in the left wing are now very beaten and very um, and, and sort of down feeling. <laughs> demoralized, we say. <laughs> right, demoralized. But we must sort of see the positive aspect in this. The right wing won with a campaign based in we must do another constitution. They never once maintained that the 1980 constitution stayed. Their campaign was focused in a new constitution and their compromise was to have a state, a social state. So that is a cultural win for us in the left. So we have certain minimums that are here to stay in this new process. And in this new process right now, the government is in negotiations with um, the different political parties from the right wing and the left wing to establish a new process. The new process, everyone says, and I think this will sort of stay, means a new con constitutional convention with a different election mechanism, probably. Right wing wants less uh, reserved seats for indigenous peoples. Gender equality is, no, is in doubt. Uh, independent lists are probably going to be in doubt. The amount of people is in doubt. Certain details are being discussed, but there's going to be a new constitutional convention. Um, that's the only certainty we have today. We don't know how it's going to be chosen. We don't know um, if it's going to use the proposal from this constitutional convention as a base, or if it's going to use the constitutional convention of 1980 as a base, or if it's going to start from zero again. Well, those are the things that we're sort of figuring out, but we're going to have another constitutional convention. But this does give you more time to organize and educate uh, the population. Yes, yes. I think we we have to um, sort of advance in that way and prepare the social fabric needed for a new constitutional convention. That was Antonia Atria, an activist with the Democratic Revolution Party in Chile. Her point about the role of mandatory voting at the end of the interview is quite interesting. You often hear activists on the electoral left celebrating the potential of mobilizing the disengaged, those who don't vote, those who are alienated from politics. There is a point to this, of course. But as the Chilean right showed, the disengaged are a very fertile audience for professionally crafted lies. The idea that there's a rich, untapped vein of potential left voters among the politically detached may be a delusion. 
Or perhaps there's a lot of work to be done to bring the disengaged on board. Just doing get out the vote won't do the trick. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Stereolab's Simple Headphone Mind, a collaboration with Nurse with Wound, originally issued as a limited edition EP in 2007. It's now been freshly re-released on what may be their last album, Pulse of the Early Brain, a collection of rarities and outtakes. Next, student debt. Only about 15% of the U.S. population has any, but for those who do, it's a source of profound misery. The Biden administration has offered a plan for limited debt relief that stops short of full forgiveness. And I should say that as long as higher education remains very expensive, debt will resume its climb once relief has taken full effect. For some reason, people often pay a lot more attention to debt than to the gap between income and outgo that causes it. Here to talk about what the Biden plan means and what other efforts the administration is making to lighten the student debt burden is Juliana Fredman. She's a legal aid attorney in the San Francisco Bay Area who works with lots of clients who have serious debt problems. It seemed wise to keep her employer's name out of this. Juliana Fredman. Let me just start by asking what your thoughts are on uh, the uh, student debt relief proposal that Biden issued uh, the other week. It's going to be really big for a lot of people. There's a huge number of borrowers who have debts that are under ten or under $20,000. And these tend to be the people who are struggling the most with their loans. And so for those people, it's going to be quite transformative and life-changing. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of systemic problems with higher education that aren't really addressed by this, but this is also part of like a much broader effort and a, a series of policies that have been announced that it's sort of culminating in this $10,000 to $20,000 uh, mass forgiveness that are really pretty gratifying for someone in my position to see because they are really actually addressing things that have been moldering for a long time and, and you know, programs that haven't been working and have been really harming people. What kinds of people do you see? I mean, are they, they, they um, clients with um, debts in this range, or do you see people with you know the six-figure debts that we hear about? I see some people with six-figure debts. There certainly are people with six-figure debts, but I do tend to see people with smaller debts. A lot of my clients, I would say, um, attended these for-profit predatory schools. So like that would be a big portion of the client population. And they tend to have, I would say, between twenty and forty or $50,000 in student loans. I don't see a lot of the people in the, in the really, really high range, although they, they do turn up some. You mentioned those for-profit schools. How big a factor is that? I mean, then what kind of degrees do people emerge with if they emerge with a degree at all? Well, a lot of them never finish. An issue with some of the big players in the for-profit college industry is that they, they made all sorts of promises to students, right, about sometimes up to 100% job placement. They made promises about how much money they were going to earn from these certificates or two-year degrees. They got things like medical assisting, uh, medical bookkeeping. These are all real big ones. Business degrees. Corinthian Colleges, which is was the biggest player, the largest for-profit college ever. Um, and it was publicly traded and all the rest of it. 
they were just totally cooking the books in terms of like employment numbers. So they count someone who was working at McDonald's as fully employed for purposes of like touting their job placement numbers to students. They also lied about things like whether their credits were transferable. Largely these credits were not accepted by public institutions or they weren't accepted for like their degree, the degree area that they were earned and they might, some of them might've been accepted for general ed. So students would find themselves coming out with a degree they couldn't get a job with, with credits they couldn't transfer um, and with a lot of debt, like way more debt than they get for the same type of two-year degree from a community college, for example. What's the appeal of these for-profit colleges to um, these students? Do they fall for the, the lies that the, uh, the colleges uh, spew forth or, or is there something else about them that appeals? One, the hallmark of these schools is that the majority of their spending is on advertising and recruiting as opposed to like the actual education. So they would hire recruiters. Like a lot of them got in trouble for having like incentives to recruiters for how many people they signed up. There's a really interesting 2012 Senate committee hearing on these schools where they actually attach a lot of the like the internal training for the recruiters. And um they talk about like targeting people's pains and their feelings of worthlessness. And they would say people have low self-esteem. They're isolated. You know, few people care about them. They're impatient. They want quick solutions. And they sort of target what they felt like uh, was missing in people's lives. They had this diagram of a pain funnel that you were supposed to use in order to like encourage people to, to sign on the dotted line. They did a lot of targeting of of students, they did a lot of daytime television type of targeting, and they targeted people who maybe didn't feel real comfortable in school, who a lot of times whose families didn't go to college, who didn't have a lot of experience or anyone around to sort of help them evaluate their different options, and then they recruited heavy. So you hear it, you know, down the line when you talk to students who went to these schools, they saw something on TV or something, or and they called up, and the people were like, why don't you just come down for a tour? And they'd go down for a tour and they'd leave having enrolled and signed up for $20,000 in student loan. It was like, close the deal, the recruiter would take them around, but they would always leave already enrolled in school. And these schools operate almost entirely in federal money. Once the loans are issued, they don't really care if the students stay in. It doesn't matter to them whether they finish their degrees once the loans have been dispersed and they've passed the time for a refund. Predator seems like the, an accurate word to use. The pain funnel is just really cynical and uh, depraved. Yeah. And, you know, and it's really been borne out talking to people. So I kind of got into student loan work more. Corinthian closed in 2016 or 2015, rather. It closed because the federal government withdrew its eligibility for Title IV funding. So basically they cannot operate if the government says we're not, we're not going to let you get federal loans anymore because all their, that's where the vast majority of their money comes from. So immediately these schools have to shut their door. And so you know, I saw I saw a lot of students from that school, and that was what got me started on, on doing more work around student loans. And the stories are shockingly similar, and they're very upsetting. If I'm remembering correctly, the Obama administration made some effort to rein these characters in, and then Trump let them rip again. Um, what, what's policy like now? Yeah, the Obama administration did do some enforcement actions that led to like a few of these precipitous closures of large schools, Corinthian, ITT Tech, and some others. And I don't know how, how you're familiar with, with borrower defense to repayment. There's a law that, that was on the book since 1995, but wasn't really used before the Corinthian closure when a bunch of people from strike debt started, student debt strikers out of the Corinthian school started using this kind of obscure law to apply for discharge of their loans. There's a law that's that was on the books again since like 1995 that said basically a borrower can assert a defense against repayment if the school broke the law in this case, fraudulent misrepresentations. And the Obama administration did institute kind of some streamlined relief for, for um, Corinthian students to apply for. And they also did the Higher Education Act to make rules around student loans it requires this thing called negotiated rulemaking, where you get a whole bunch of stakeholders in a room for two weeks, and they try to write policy. So they convened one of those, which came out with some pre-borrower-friendly policies. And then under the Trump administration, they had a new... <laughs> a new negotiated rulemaking and rewrote all those rules to much less borrower-friendly policies. And then under the Biden administration, they convened these again, and they came out with some, um, again, pretty borrower-friendly policies. There's been a real effort over the last six months, and I'm sure it's been in the, in the works longer, by the department to sort of clear the deck on a lot of bad debt on the books of the department. So they, they have instituted 
mass discharges from some of these schools. So the, again, the biggest ones, all Corinthian debt is being is being discharged, whether you apply for it or not. So under the Obama administration, they created these applications, but now the, the current administration is just going to wipe that debt out. Certainly for the clients I see, it's a much better policy because these discharges are sort of obscure. They're very confusing. The forms you could use were like, if you went on July 1st, 2010, it was different rules than if you went on June 29th of 2010, you know, so now they're just, they're clearing out that debt. And that is before the $10,000, $20,000 forgiveness or just wiping it. Do you also see um, people who go to more conventional institutions? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I do see, I do see people from more conventional institutions because of where I'm situated. I tend to see borrowers who are in more distress. So people who are disabled or elderly and have, have loans um, from decades ago and they're having their social security offset to pay for it. When you're dealing with student loan debt, it's just so different from other kinds of debt. So like most creditors have to sue you and there's certain kinds of income that's too, super protected. And there's a timeline, right? There's a deadline for how long they have to sue. So student loans just aren't like that. There's no statute of limitations. They can come after you forever unless you become disabled until you die. And they have these extraordinary collection powers, right? They don't have to sue you. They can take people's tax refunds. They can garnish your wages at a much higher rate than for a regular judgment, at least in California. Um, And they can take your social security and and social security disability, not all of it, but they can take some of it um, to get paid, which no other creditor can. And they can't be discharged in bankruptcy. So like you certainly see people who went to reputable schools because they're expensive and, and are unable to pay for various reasons. I guess it is hard to say how much just getting $10,000 off their loans will help those people. But there's a lot of other stuff that the department is actually proposing along with this that might help those people more. They are looking to create a much more generous income-driven repayment plan where you pay much less of your income and towards towards the loans for the period of time before it gets forgiven, for example. There's a lot in there where they're trying to ease the pain a little bit going forward. It's not a systemic solution to the fact that we don't have enough public funding of higher education and schools are too expensive, but there may be something in there for people with higher balances too who are struggling. The people you see with uh, serious uh, student debt problems, do they have other debts uh, that they're contending with as well? Sometimes, but often not, you know, because, you know, also when you're talking to people like about the potential for bankruptcy, student loans are very, very, very iffy in terms of getting them discharged in bankruptcy. And I I do know that I've had a lot of conversations when like, well, if you had enough debt that you needed a bankruptcy anyway, maybe you would give it a try. (laughs) Since, you know, there's no point or you really don't want to do it. Bankruptcy, if you've only got student loans because you could end up, you know, paying your bankruptcy attorney, going through all this, having a bankruptcy on your record and not getting it discharged. So often it's the only thing people have. Um, Not always. A lot of people have a lot of consumer debt, too, sometimes. But in general, it does not follow that someone with a high student loan balance has other kinds of significant amounts of other kinds of debt. I'm speaking with Juliana Fredman, a public interest lawyer in the Bay Area who handles a lot of student debt cases. Years ago, I interviewed a uh, bankruptcy attorney who does one of the biggest bankruptcy attorneys in New York City, and he is a very strong advocate for bankruptcy, like evangelist for bankruptcy, filing bankruptcy. He described the emotional state that people are in when they enter his office. They're just like wrecks. They haven't, they can't sleep. You know, they're just um, suffering from all kinds of psychosomatic illnesses. They're and they're full of self blame. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that? match what your experience is with the clients that you see? Oh, yeah. People have so much shame and guilt around around debt that they will enter into like, you know, just as a general rule into crazy payment plans that keep them from being able to buy food and medication. You know, even when their money is completely exempt from collection, you have people are like, well, I'll just pay $5 a week forever. And yeah, it's incredibly stressful for people. It's very, very, it can be very, very emotional and very isolating. And a lot of what we do is certainly like when we have clinics for people to just sort of come in and with whatever debt issues they have going on is just sort of talk people through it. Everybody wants to explain what happened, you know? Um, you know, I had surgery, I got sick, I, this happened, my mom died, you know? And it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's an awful thing. People carry around horrible amounts of guilt about it. 
Are you able to persuade them otherwise and that, you know, these that they've been preyed upon by predators or does that does that guilt persist uh, through the process of trying to work it out legally? Yes, I always try to talk to people. I try to tell people they don't need to judge themselves. Things happen. And, you know, and like in terms of like, that's what interest is about. That's what tax write-offs are about, that creditors are factoring in that a certain amount of people aren't going to be able to pay things. That's sort of the way the system works. Um, In terms of like the predatory schools, I mean, there's so much bound up in that. So when people have come in from the predatory schools, it's like, it's, there's so much shame and pain about it. And, and, you know, know, often, especially if like your parents didn't even finish high school and you were the one who was going to college, it can be really heartbreaking. And I think it's really interesting because, so the Trump administration had started giving people partial relief on these, uh, for these scam schools when they applied for what's called borrower defense. And they, they filled out these forms and they laid out all the reasons that, you know, like all what they were told and sometimes provided documentation about it instead of wiping out their loans, the Trump administration was actually, the Department of Education was actually issuing decisions where they're like, okay, well, we think you uh, qualify for 10% relief or 30% relief. So these students who have $30,000 for a degree they can't use or no degree would end up getting, you know, $6,000 off of that $30,000, which doesn't really put them in any kind of different position. And, And I think what's interesting about that is like, and what, you know, I think as advocates, we would say is that like wiping out the debt doesn't put them back in the position they were. You know, I have clients that have been waiting for, for loan discharges for these scam schools since 2016. They've been sitting there in a state of suspended animation waiting for their loans to get discharged. And like they're, you know, when you talk to people, they're never getting back that time. They're never getting to be that 20 year old who was all excited about going to school and building something better. You know, they're scared to go back to school. They feel too old. They feel like failures. So there's, there's a huge opportunity cost. Now maybe they have a couple of kids, so they really can't go back to school or they feel like they can't go back to school. And so it's not just owing this debt, which is, which is really burdensome. It's, it it derailed their whole lives. Um, And so full relief in terms of like getting your loans discharged doesn't really compensate you for for what you lose, I think, in those situations. Given the restrictions on what you can do to get rid of student debt, you know, it's not dischargeable in bankruptcy, and you mentioned all these other um, things that insulate the creditor's interests. Um, what exactly can you do for them? There's various discharges, or, and, and they're mostly, there's, well, there's, disabil- there's discharges based on disability, which are fairly easy if a person's disabled and can't work, which is one. But there's other discharges around, mostly around malfeasance by the school, so we can help them with that. And then there's, a, there's currently a big, they're trying to fix right now the public service loan forgiveness program, which does actually, should encompass a large portion of borrowers. So anyone who works for a government, anyone who works for a school district, anyone who works for a 501c3. And this is a program from 2007 that was supposed to see um, people who work in these in government or nonprofit jobs basically could make 120 payments at an income on an income driven plan, have the remainder discharged. And the this program has been so horribly mismanaged and was so complicated and convoluted that like I work with a bunch of lawyers and, you know, it's very hard, like less than 1% or something were discharged within, you know, once the 10 years started being up from when the program started, like no one was getting these discharges. So they brought in a waiver, which was from last October and it ends October 31st, where the department is just basically trying to clear the books on these also, where you can get all of these program requirements waived. As long as you're working for the right program and making some kind of payment, they're going to count those months, even if you weren't in the specific exact payment plan you were supposed to be in and and didn't have exactly the right kind of federal loan. It was it was very complicated. So that's going to result in huge discharges. And like I had a client recently who had no idea. I'd been working for a, a government agency and had no idea that, for example, she probably can get all her loans discharged as a public service worker under this under this waiver. So there's very there's a lot. There's a lot going on. But for a lot of people, like historically, all you really could do, especially for very low-income people, is get them into some kind of income-driven plan. So if you're in an income-driven repayment plan, and and those are traditionally set at 10 to 15% of your disposable income, but that's based on a very, very low 
measure of what you should need to live. Then in theory, after 20 years of those payments, your loans will get discharged. I mean, one huge problem here is that the federal government's Department of Education uses private servicers to service their loan portfolio. So since 2010, there are no other lenders. Since 2010, all the, all the student loans are made directly by the Department of Education. It is the it is the lender, it is the debt collector, it is the regulator, right? It's all those things at once. And so they use these private servicers, and the private servicers weren't steering people into the into the right payment plan because they worked in, they were teachers, they worked in public service, they worked in a public hospital, whatever it was. And so these programs just got really messed up. And another thing that they're historically all we could really do for people who weren't eligible for any discharge was try to get, you know, help them get their loans out of default. So they'd stop having their tax refunds seized every year and into some kind of a plan that at least would take hopefully what was an affordable amount of money every month and not subject them to these horrendous, you know, draconian collection options. Because, you know, like people who get earned income tax credits and tax refunds, they rely on that money. Like that's, you know, that's the, that's the money to pay off the bills or to get everyone new shoes or whatever. You know, people rely on that money coming in and people will have it seized year after year after year to go towards their, their defaulted student loans. So all we could really do historically for people who, didn't qualify for any kind of relief was just get them into a program where they wouldn't be subject to collections. And that includes, by the way, like senior citizens. So like I've had clients who are in their seventies and have, you know, some really old loans and are having their social 15% of their social security offset every month. And they're living only on social security, but they're not disabled, right? They can't necessarily work because maybe their work was like more manual or physical and they're 75 but their doctor won't say they're disabled because they're not disabled. So there's no discharge available for those people. There's no, there's no age discharge, right? So you'll have people who are senior citizens with like $8,000 in student loans. And you're like, all you can really do is get into an income driven plan and, and income driven plans can be set at $0 a month. So that person might be on a $0 a month repayment plan, but don't forget to recertify every year. If you don't recertify every year, you're going to go back into default and then we're going to start taking your social security again. So it's, it's a pretty untenable situation. And I think, you know, one thing that the, that this loan forgiveness will hopefully do is get, at least get that stuff off the books, you know, at least just clear that stuff out because it's not like it's debt that anyone's ever paying back anyway. So, and finally, um, how much do you anticipate this plan from Biden is going to change your work? I don't know. You know, it's an interesting question because it's only an automatic forgiveness if the Department of, as far as I understand it thus far, if the Department of Education already has your income information, then it should be automatic. So, in other words, if you're already on an income-driven repayment plan, then you're certifying your income with the government every year, right? So, those people... The department can be like, okay, they make under the amount. We can just knock off the ten thousand, and we can see whether they got a Pell Grant or not. So we can knock off the twenty thousand. But for everybody else, it's, there's going to be some kind of application process, and application processes cut out a lot of people, and often the people who maybe need the, the relief the most, um, you know, because they just don't know what's going on. So I, I don't know how much it'll change. I don't know how much it'll change it. I think it depends how long it extends for, really, and how long the tail is. Whether we have time to you know, like whether it's like everybody has to apply within the next six months or if it's something that remains available for a longer period of time. The things that are going to change my work probably more, again, is is some of this other, is the clearing out of some of the bad debt. There was just a settlement for 250,000 borrowers with pending claims that is probably going to see all those debts discharged or 80% of those debts discharged. There's a lot of simultaneous things going on that are more targeted at particular populations. And I think particularly at students who went to predatory schools that might may end up um, impacting my client population more. There's also supposed to be something called fresh start. So people who were whose loans were in default before the payment pause. So federally held loans have been in payment pause since March of 2020. And there's been no interest accruing and there's been no payments required since March of 2020. So one of the things that they're trying to do is take everyone out of default before the repayments start so that people have a chance to enroll into a income-driven repayment plan. Um, it's not, again, that could end up 
impacting our work a lot because that program is you're likely going to have to go through these default servicers, um, the, the department's default servicers, which are private companies, which are tend to be their debt collectors. Right. So it's all a very potentially complicated endeavor. And and again, like anytime you get too bureaucratic and there's too many applications and too many, you know, recertifications, you tend to lose people who maybe have a harder time navigating and are very, very, very overwhelmed, you know, already because of financial pressures and other things. So I think that's where we would step in and try and help people figure out what they might be eligible for. But um, I suspect it's not going to resolve everything. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's going to be enormously complicated. The relief sounds good on the surface, but it's going to be a real minefield for an awful lot of people who may not be equipped to handle it. It potentially is, you know, because, I mean, it depends what kind of outreach, that, you know, the department does. And, you know, I think that there's there's like some real earnest attempts, it seems like, to try to resolve some of these issues. But it's it's a big, I mean, stu- the student loan servicing and collection and, and you know, the programs are a big mess. I mean, there's like six, how many different, four or five different income-driven repayment plans, and they're all slightly different. It's like, oh, if you have this kind of loan, you could be in this one. If you have this kind of loan, you got to consolidate. And if you have this kind of loan, it's this much of your income. You know, it's it's an enormously complicated situation. And it's not going to be easy to navigate. It's, and I think that, like, some of the press coverage is like, oh, they're just going to boom, wipe out all these debts. But that's not really going to happen for people who, again, who aren't already in an income-driven repayment plan, as I understand it, it you know, it's, 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 you're going to have to do some sort of affirmative request for it. How's Juliana Fredman, a legal aid attorney in the San Francisco Bay Area who works with lots of clients with serious debt problems? For me, the best long-term solution to the student debt problem is to make education free from pre-K to post-doc by the immortal words of the late Congressman John Lewis, nothing is free in America, except maybe bailouts for bankers. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another track from that new Stereolab compilation, Pulse of the Early Brain, this Spool of Collusion, which was first issued as a limited edition 7-inch in 2007. Till next week, bye.